So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 11th chapter, verses 5 through 8. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And may the Lord reveal to us the, the meaning of this parable And may we take it with us this morning. Let's pray and ask his blessing. Father, we know that when Jesus was here amongst us, he taught quite often with these parables, very simple stories, very straightforward. And yet sometimes the language over thousands of years kind of changes a little bit and it's hard for us to translate them. And so I I, I pray that the words that I say this morning will be indeed your words, that we will clear this up, that we will see this parable in exactly the way that Jesus meant it to be seen in his fullness, and that um, we can recognize the very simple but yet deeply profound message that we find in it. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The theologian A.W. Tozer, and many I know of you have read him, in, in an epic book that he wrote on the, um, the attributes of God, He penned these words, and you probably have heard this quoted on various places. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Uh, John MacArthur, in his commentary on this, quotes this rather extensively. And what uh, Tozer is basically saying is this, is that the way you read Scripture, the way that you pray, the way you live your Christian life, the way that you involve yourself with Christian service and work will be determined by the way that you view God. Whether you exalt Him, whether you see Him for the God that He actually is, whether you see Him as He is in Scripture, or whether you have watered Him down to some degree to where He's a little bit more manageable as far as we are concerned. In fact, Tozer goes on to say that every person... Every church, every organization, and even countries will never rise above their conception of God. So in religion, in doctrine, in churches, in your own walk with Christ, if you have a deflated view of God, if you've pulled him down to your level, if you have humanized him, as so many of us do, then you'll never rise above that view of him. Where if he's exalted? to the heights as he is, then your religion, your worship can rise at least up to that particular um, ceiling. People ask me all the time, what does it mean to be reformed? What's the definition of reformed? And, you know, a lot of people will talk about the five points uh, of Calvinism, but I, I don't use that. That's not really what it means to be reformed. Almost always, I will go to those five solas, those five onlys, and in particular, the last one, soli deo gloria. If you really want to know the emphasis of being reformed, it is that God and God alone 
has all the glory, all the glory to him. We exalt him. And, and, and to exalt him is to see him as he is, to see him as he is presented to us in scripture in his mighty attributes he's eternal he's infinite he's immutable he's omnipotent omniscient omnipresent he is perfect in his holiness and in his justness he is perfect in his mercy and his love and his compassion and we can go on and on and on these are the attributes that define god and if your view of god is exalted then you have plenty of room in which to grow. Tozer goes on to say this, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. How do you see God? Because the way that you see God will be the way that you interpret scripture. And that's going to be very true this morning with this parable. If you have a deflated view of God, you're going to see yourself in the driver's seat. You're going to see this from a human perspective. But if you have an exalted view of God, what Jesus means in this particular parable is become, going to become immediately apparent. And that's what I'm going to try to bring out because this whole thing is going to boil down to a question of impudence. <coughs> and I'll explain later on what I mean by that. There's three things I want you to keep in your mind as we go into this, into this uh, passage of Scripture. Number one, I want you to think to yourself, what Tozer said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Well, you just keep in your mind, well, what, what is my conception? What is my perception of God? And the second thing I want you to keep in mind when we go through this parable is who does the sleeping man represent? Okay, we're talking about prayer. We're talking about a request and a answer. So who does the answerer to our prayers represent. You just keep that in mind. And then thirdly, I want you to remember that God is infinitely, infinitely good. Good through and through. So therefore is incapable in his godness of any malevolence or any kind of maliciousness. So with that said, let's kind of turn back to the text. Now, context is hugely significant. If you weren't here, if you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Luke's version of this of this Lord's Prayer, so-called Lord's Prayer. It's really not the Lord's Prayer, but it is a prayer that the Lord gives us. It's a model prayer that He teaches us when He teaches us how to pray. And, and, and there's a couple of things that I want you to remember about where we are in general in the book of Luke. The subject that is on the table is sanctification and sanctification through the means of grace. There are two great images that we should have in our minds. The image of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, absorbing every word that he says, much to the chagrin of Martha. But nonetheless, that image is the image of the first means of grace, which is the word of God, to inundate yourself with that word of God. The second image is Jesus on top of a mountain praying all night long. And, and, and that's the second means of grace, prayer. Now, the prayer is the subject, but behind that subject is the idea of sanctification. And I'm going to go through this prayer very quickly, again, just to remind you of things, but as an overview, I want you to remember what we came away with. The primary to this prayer, when Jesus tells us how to pray, the primary focus is the glory of God, the exaltation of God, and the furtherance of the kingdom of God. 
That's the primary purpose, or that's the primary message that Jesus gives us when he tells us how to pray. Okay, so going back to this prayer and how it came about, a disciple of Jesus asks him to teach him and apparently all the rest that are around him how to pray. And in particular, he asks him to teach us how to pray in a way that will identify us as disciples of Christ. In other words, all rabbis had a particular way that they would teach their disciples to pray that would identify those disciples with that particular rabbinic school. And so the disciple, when he says, teach us like John the Baptist taught his disciples, he wants uh, uh, to know, how do I pray like Jesus prays? Jesus gives him 38 words. 38 words in the Greek, concise, straightforward. And that's when we realize, boy, there is a language of prayer that those words just unleash. And we talked about the language of prayer over the last couple of weeks and how we find it as we, as we, we, we allow that sanctified soul to, to sing the songs of redemption that are locked away in this sinful body. And the more we read scripture, the more the language of prayer just comes out to us. And so that's how the prayer began. And when Jesus says, okay, you want to know how to pray like I pray. Now, of course, he goes up to the mountain and he prays all night long. So we know that there's more than 38 words there, right? But nonetheless, when, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, the first thing that he says is you have the privilege, you have the ability to go to the God of the universe and call him Father, now, that's usually significant this morning because when we start talking about who this sleeper is and what he's going to respond and what Jesus is saying in this parable, well, that's the God that we through Christ have been given the privilege of calling Abba Father. Okay? He loves us and he wants to give us all good things. So we want to remember that. Second thing that Jesus taught us was the first petition. Hallowed be your name. Holy sanctified. Now, God is already holy and sanctified. He doesn't need to get any holier. He can't because he's perfect in his holiness. We're the ones that we need to recognize that. So when Jesus tells us, you want to know how to pray like I pray, then pray that God would be sanctified, first of all, in your souls, and then secondly, in the world around you. Second petition was that his kingdom would come that the kingdom of God would permeate this dark world and fill it with light, starting with my soul. May people look at me and see the light of the kingdom of God just shining right out of me. Okay, you want to pray like Jesus prays? You want to know how he wants you to pray? Pray for God's holiness. Pray for his intimacy and pray for the kingdom of God to come. And then after all of that is done, you can pray for yourself. Pray that he provides you with your daily bread. Now, we talked about that. That brings glory to God, too, because he's the one who gives us that daily bread. And 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 to, to pray to God for the things that he already knows that you need is to pray to him in total dependence. I know that I need you to provide for me. I don't provide for myself. And out of that comes thanksgiving. And so, once again, even in that, God is glorified. Same thing with forgive us of our sins. How can you possibly think about your sins for being forgiven without thinking and just glorying in and singing from your very soul about the one who made it possible for your sins to be forgiven? That's the language of prayer that just comes bursting out of us and overflowing when we think about the one who died on a cross to pay for those sins. Once again, God glorified. God was glorified when Jesus fulfilled his plan of redemption by going to the cross. 
And if God can forgive you of all the egregious sins against him that he's forgiven you, certainly you can turn around and forgive your neighbor for the little pity things that you, you, you see how this is all focused on God. You see how the entire prayer brings glory to God. And then, of course, the finally that he would protect us from the enemy. So that's how Jesus taught us to pray. Now, when we get into this parable, I want you to notice that seamlessly he just flows right into the parable. There's no break, right? So this parable is a commentary on those 38 words that Jesus gave us last week. So with that said, now let's take a look at at the prayer. And, and, And the first thing I want to point out is, and he said to them, all right, no break, no change in venue, no difference as far as where they are or the group of people. It flows directly in. So we should see this in the light of the way Jesus just taught us how to pray. It's very, very significant that that is part of it. Now, there's a couple of things I want to tell you about this parable. I'm probably going to present it to you in a different way than you have understood it traditionally. And in fact... Some of you are going to have translations that, at least in my mind, don't translate this the way that it should be. You know, who am I to say that? Um, well, I'm not, uh, acting on my just my own um, opinion. These are others that also are scholars. I'm not a scholar; they're scholars, um, and 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 bring something out. And I'm hoping that I can bring that out um, this morning. But what I want you to see right off the bat is that this entire parable from verses 5 through 6 to 7 is one thought, and it's actually a question. Look at the way Jesus frames it. He says, which of you? Now, actually, the literal is who of you? Now, that's the way he starts. Your translation might say, suppose one of you, or who among you, all right? It frames it as if this is all going to be entirely rhetorical, and I'm going to make the point later on that it's, it's hyperbole, actually. Um, it, it's, it's completely off the charts as far as the, um, uh, the, the insinuation that this would never happen. But look down at the end of verse 7. What do you see at the very, very end of verse 7? A question mark, Okay. So what that means is that framed in rhetorical um, language, in the context of incredulity, the entire parable is presented to you as a question. With that in mind, let's read it again. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and would say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is not shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now, What I want you to see is the way that that is framed, it is given to us as a situation that could never happen. In other words, let me see if I can put it in different words for you and you can perhaps see what I'm saying. Imagine that it was something like this. Who among you, if you had this deep need and your honor was at stake, even if it was at the middle of the night, would in your wildest imagination think that you could go to your neighbor and ask him to fulfill that need and your neighbor would say, I'm too busy, go away. That's the context of the parable. And and we make we need to make sure we see it that way or else we're not going to understand what Jesus is saying. 
So with that kind of as the framing of it, let's kind of unpack this just a wee bit. Jesus was really great at telling parables, and he would tell a parable is a simple story from everyday life that usually has a single point. This one is a single point, and it's quite simple, and it's quite beautiful, but it has been muddled, um, not only by the way it's taught, but also by the way that it's been translated. So let me see if I can take us into this parable just a wee bit. First of all, let me make the assumption that we are in one of the villages of, of Palestine or Israel, either Galilee or Judea. Um, the villages dotted the landscape, and, and people lived in small communities like Nazareth. And in a small community, everyone knew everyone, and the name of the community was more or less a communal kind of situation. In those little towns or those little villages, there would not be a professional baker. There is actually not even a shop or a store where you could actually go out and buy something. Everything was pretty much made from hand. And in fact, I am told that most of these little villages would have a communal oven. I've been in several villages in Haiti where, you know, most of the people in the village are cooking over charcoal fires. They, they don't have an oven. And so there's a communal oven that they would take their dough and bake their bread and then take it home. Well, that's kind of the way it was in these little villages that um, dotted the landscape in Palestine. There was no place. I, he couldn't say, in other words, hey, wait a minute, let me go knead some dough and throw it into the oven so I can cook you some bread. No, when you're out of bread in the middle of the night, you're out of bread. Okay, no place to go and buy it. That's the first assumption that I want to make. The second assumption or the actual the second thing about the parable is that into this little village, an unexpected guest comes in the middle of the night. Now, I am told that in this area, quite often people would travel at night because the days were so hot. But this tended to be more in the desert areas, like down south in the Negev or east of the Jordan over in the, the dry deserts of Arabia or Egypt. Those areas, yes, it, it was so brutal during the day that people would quite often travel at night. But we're in Palestine. We have a little bit of elevation and we've got some of the sea breeze that is there. So it wouldn't be that normal for a person to show up in the middle of the night. But and, and, and that's probably the reason that this man is totally caught off guard. The host is completely unprepared when a friend of his, not even a sojourner, not even a stranger, but a friend knocked on his door in the middle of the night, woke him up, got him out of bed and said, wait, can you put me up for the night? You know, I, I pressed on to get here so I could spend the night with you. Now, if we're going to understand this parable, we have to put it into the context of Middle Eastern um, um, hospitality, right? What would you do if somebody knocked on your door in the middle of the night? Okay, you, you, you'd say, there's a hotel right down the street, you know, go right in there, come see me in the morning, you know, something like that. But not so in the Middle East, especially for century Middle East and, and, and in Palestine. Hospitality was one of the primary of social graces. And when it wasn't even a social grace, it was mandatory. 
And so for this man to have a friend knock on his door and for him not to have anything to feed him was a major breach of social etiquette. It was a faux pas of magnanimous proportions. And not only was the hospitality of this man at stake, but his honor was at stake. You know, when you read these stories, especially the parables of Jesus, you have to try to put yourself into the mindset of the people that Jesus is telling the parable to. Now, in the Mideastern mindsets, they're not, well, they weren't so much rule-oriented as they are honor and shame-oriented. In other words, decisions were made based on whether there was honor involved or whether shame would come out of that. Honor in, in, as, as, a, as, a, as a focus of our society has been all but lost, unfortunately. We live in a time where people flaunt their shame instead of looking to do that which is honorable. They could care less. But this is absolutely opposite of the way that it was in those days. So in, in other words, when this man knocks on this guy's door at night and he has no food, nothing to put before him, it's not just that his hospitality would suffer, it's that his honor is at stake. It's shameful for him not to be able to put something on the table for his friend. And not only would it be shameful for this man, but since it was such a tight community in those villages, it would be shameful and dishonoring to the entire village. So everyone's honor is at stake. Okay, now that is one of the primary things that we want to remember about this story. Now, pause, just put it on pause for a little bit. Okay, let's go back a few uh, a few weeks. And let's remember the parable that came right before this one. Do you remember what the attorney asked Jesus? Who's my neighbor? And he told the story about the good Samaritan and a priest and a Levite who walked by a dying man. And it was the hated Samaritan who actually took care of him. And he was explaining this. If you really want to, to call upon the Shema to, to say, this is how I'm saved. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. You want to love your neighbor like Jesus loves your neighbor. This is the way to do it. He is telling this parable now. And we're going to start to turn our attention to the one who listens to the request. And I asked you at the very beginning to keep in mind who that is. Who's the one who listens to the requests of your prayer? Well, nonetheless, we're just going to keep that in the back of your mind. And finally, the subject of this request. He goes and he asks for three loaves of bread. Now, you'll read in some places that, well, that's just about the amount that one person would eat. So he's looking for three little small loaves. Well, if they're Syrian bread cakes, that would be true. But the Palestinian bread was a little bit bigger than that. And so I think, especially when we get down to verse 8, and and, and the words like everything he needs or anything start coming into this, I, I, I think that basically it's, it's more than just bread that, that the man needs. And, and, and by the way, bread was not just something that you ate in those days. Bread was a utensil. 
they didn't have knives, forks, and spoons, folks. You, you didn't eat, you, you know, with that. In other words, they had bowls filled with either meat or maybe some crushed olives or different kinds of things. And you can remember from your study of the Last Supper, they would tear off a piece of bread and do what? Dip it in the bowl, and that's how they ate. So the man, the man could just as easily be going next door and say, you know something, I've got, I've got some olives and some meat to feed them, but I have no utensils, you know? I need some bread. Bottom line is that the meal is not going to take place and hospitality will not be served unless the man is able to get some bread. And it appears that his neighbor has it. Okay? Now, I told you that this entire parable hinges on that word impudence. Okay? That that there's a word that is used here in the 8th verse that, did I tell you that or did I forget to tell you that? Well, I'm telling you now whether I forgot or did it or not. That, that, that the whole parable keys on one word, which is impudence. Now, in your translation, unfortunately, you may see the word persistence. You may see the word boldness, but that's not the word. The word is impudence. And it is a word, let me read it to you, right out of the um, Greek li- uh, the, the, the Greek um, dictionary. It goes like this. Impudence literally means without shame. Lack of sensitivity to what is proper. Carelessness about the good opinion of others. Shamelessness, impertinence, impudence, ignoring convention. That's what the word means. Now, the reason that some translators have translated a persistence is they're reading on in the story. They're getting to the next verse where Jesus starts talking about asking, seeking, and knocking. And the whole concept of knocking is perseverance in prayers. So I'm not going to tell you that persistence is not part of this, but it's not the word. It's not what this means. Basically, we have to determine who's impudent who is shameless, who's the one that is doing something or potentially doing something that is shamed. Okay, now let's ask ourselves about the requester. Let's ask ourselves about the host. What has he done that is impudent? What has he, what has he done? Well, first of all, somebody knocks on his door, gets him out of bed in the middle of the night. Was that impudent? No. He's gone next door to ask somebody, is the fact that he has gone to a neighbor and said, my honor is at stake. I'm in a real bind. I'm in a terrible dilemma. I need your help. And do you have three pieces of bread worth about a penny? That's not impudent. That, I mean, impudent, that's not um, shameless in that sense. So in fact, the only thing that makes this shameless is not the fact of his request or the nature of his request, but the time of his request. Now, you see, if, if I say that, well, he, he went over and he was persistent and bold, which of, of course, that word doesn't mean simply. It just doesn't mean it. it. It means shameless. But if I say that, that puts a different connotation on it, doesn't it? It says that this man went by and was banging on the door until his friend got out of bed. And his friend says, no, I don't want you. Go away. And he would not relent and kept banging on the door. Now, tell me where that is in this parable. Where do you see that? It doesn't say anything about banging on the door. It doesn't even say knocking. It says that he went to his neighbor and he said to him, 
There's, there's no uh, anger or, or, or persistence or boldness or anything that is involved with the request. In fact, it's a very legitimate request. And if it wasn't midnight, no one would question it. It would be the most legitimate thing to do. So it's not the fact of the request, nor is it the nature, the way that the request is done, but rather it's only the time that would make this shameless or without regard for shame. Now, what this does, brothers and sisters, and this is why I'm spending so much time on this, this is why it's important, because it shifts the onus from the requester to the one asleep in bed with his kids. Okay, the the one who can grant the request, keeping in mind who that is. Okay, it shifts the onus, not to the fact that I'm banging on this door until you give in and relent, which, by the way, is really dangerous theology to start off with. Okay, but nonetheless, it, 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 it's, it's not that picture. And all of a sudden we start to see a switch over to a, um, a, a different understanding of what this is. It shifts the onus over to the, to the um, one inside. So let's go there in the seventh verse now. And he will answer from within. Now, okay, we've shifted over. We're talking about the neighbor. We're talking about the friend. He will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up and give you anything. Now, the man has come from next door, and he said, Friend, I have got a really bad situation. I am in a dilemma. A friend of mine showed up in the middle of the night, and I have nothing to put before him. Can you please lend me three pieces of bread? And the guy makes the most ridiculous excuses and says, Don't bother me. Okay, so the focus is now on him. Remember, we're asking ourselves who's impudent here, right? Now, I want to remind you, though, that this is presented to us with incredulity. That's the that's the way that the the question is is presented. In English, you can ask a question in basically two ways. Some languages, you only have one option. But in English, we can do it two different ways. We can use the interrogative. We, we can we have a phrase like, for instance, will he get out of bed? Okay, Or will he say no? That's the interrogative. Or we can do it through our voice intonation. Uh, because a lot, of lang- a lot of languages, that's all they have. They don't have any interrogative. They just simply say, hey, he'll get out of bed? Or he won't respond to your request. And when you have a statement that is a question through that voice intonation, which of course we can't read, but we assume it's there because we go back to the beginning of it and says, who of you, who among you would would even dream that you had a friend that would do this? So we know that there is a sense of incredulity in it. And so therefore we can imagine that there's a voice intonation of the way Jesus says it, that this would never happen. In other words, what Jesus is presenting here is a situation that simply couldn't and would not ever happen unless you're an American living in the 21st century. Because it's perfectly fine with us, right? I mean, we read this and it doesn't bother us in the slightest, okay? <laughs> Who here has not gotten a telephone call in the middle of the night, right? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Who on earth could be calling at this hour, you know? And, and, and what does your spouse say? Just pull the covers up and maybe they'll go away, all right? You know, you don't want to respond to it. 
And so therefore, when this man says, okay, first of all, let's keep it in the context of first century Palestine. If this is a village and this is a typical middle age, I mean, middle income kind of a person, most of the houses were single rooms. Most of the houses would have one bottom floor, which is kind of a stable where the animals stayed. The people would live on the, on the second floor in one big room. And then of course, there's the roof where they spent most of their time, um, because it was the open air. But in that one room, they would have one bed and they would all sleep together. And, and I'm not talking about just the man, his wife and his children. I'm talking about the man, his wife, grandpa and grandma, you know, and, and the whole extended family is clustered together in one bed. That's the way they slept because they only had a single room. And then they would roll the mat up and they, they would push it against the wall for, for the rest of the night. They, they didn't have rooms and bedrooms and things like we have here. So the man's in bed, okay, it's the middle of the night, and, and, and his children are there. So he knows that we're all laying in this same bed together. If I get up and go rummaging around to find you some bread, I'm going to wake my kids up. It took me forever to get them asleep. Okay, and but besides, I've got this big old clunky door with a big old iron bolt on it, and, and there's no way that I'm going to be able to get that door open without everybody being woken up out of their sleep. So go away. Come back tomorrow. I, I, I can't be bothered with you um, because these things were, are, are, are bothersome to me. Even though that might be acceptable in the culture in which we live, where hospitality is not a big deal and honor is not a big deal, it was beyond incredulous to the audience that Jesus is telling this to. This is hyperbole. In other words, this is, this is beyond the point of ridiculousness. This would be absolutely ludicrous. They would hear that and they would say this is borderline comedy because no one, when honor is at stake and they've got a friend that needs to be fed and the whole village is going to be dishonored by this and all I have to do is get up and I'm going to tell you that my children are with me in bed and the door's closed? Really? That would never happen. And you see, that's what we have to see. We have to recognize that we are, this is a different culture than ours. And, and, and the people would laugh when Jesus said this. No way this is possibly going to happen. All the while, I want you to keep in your mind who answers the requests. Okay? Who's the one who is going to be impudent in this sense? Once again, I want to go back and I want to remind you that Jesus is telling us a parable about how to pray and the nature of prayer. And now to the one we actually pray to. Now, this is the one who has just told you a parable of the Good Samaritan, going back to that, where three men and a dying man on the road are part of that parable. And two men that should have cared for that dying man, should have loved him, should have looked after him, simply walked by on the other side. Egregiously sinful. Not any way the kind of love and compassion that Jesus wants out of his disciples. And then here comes the enemy and he loves his enemy and he gives him his oil and he gives him his wine and he rips up his clothes and bandages him and he takes him to an inn and he gives denarii. Okay? That's what Jesus has just told us. This is the model. Now, all of a sudden, I'm not going to get out of bed 
because my children are there and the door is closed and it's the middle of the night and I could care less whether or not you have a request that is a deep request that you want to get before me. I'm busy. Don't bother me. Do you think that's ever going to happen, folks? No matter how persistent you might be, no matter how bold you might be, you see, that's not the point here. The point is impudence would be that one in the bed who refused you. And that kind of impudence, that kind of shamefulness, that shameless disregard for the needs of the man who came and made the request would never happen. You want a simple solution, a simple story, that's it. That's not God. That is never, ever going to happen. Okay, so but let's let's stay here in this because uh, I I, want to kind of uh, make this point just a little bit more. If indeed, and and, and I I might as well tell you, um, I'm bucking against some really brilliant guys here. You know, I I mean, you you, you read R.C. Sproul, you read John MacArthur, you read these guys, they're going to say persistent boldness. Okay, they're going to say that's what this means. And, I, you know, I love them and I read about I just don't think in this sense uh, um, that that I think they're projecting what comes next on this particular parable. I don't think we need to. I think we need to keep this parable, the word as it is shameless. But because if if we don't, we switch the onus of the entire parable back to the person who is banging on the door. And, 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 and the voice from within says, no, I'm not going to give you anything. But yet I continue to pound. I continue to pester. I continue to do those things. And that is supposed to get the one inside to change his mind. God changed his mind. We talked about those attributes earlier. So therefore we, we, we need to keep it in that perspective because actually, actually, the word that is used that translates impudence is a word. Now, again, I'm not the scholar that does all this work, but I'm reading other guys who tell me that in all of Greek literature, everything we have, and that means the Bible, it means the Old Testament, the Septuagint. There's one example of when this word is used in a positive sense. Every time it is used, whether it's the Bible or outside of the Bible, it is something that is a negative. It is a maliciousness. It is a shameless disregard for something. Now, if Jesus is actually teaching us a parable to be persistent in our prayers, and trust me, I'm not saying he's not going to teach that. He's getting ready to teach it in the next verse. But it's not the focus of this parable, at least in my mind. If he was teaching us that this word was persistence in prayer, that's positive. The word is never used in a positive sense. It's only used negatively. So therefore, who's the impudent one? Who's the one that would be the example of a glaring, egregious shamelessness? It would be the man who chose not to get out of bed to honor the request. So let me put it this way at least as far as the parable is concerned. The subject on the table is hospitality. Man has shown up in the middle of the night. One man that, who's, who's, who's the host doesn't have bread. He's gone to his neighbor to ask him to help him. Hospitality is the objective. Now, the man with who's the host 
who has the first dilemma. His dilemma is, okay, I don't have any bread. I have to serve him. That's a major breach of, of, of social etiquette. Here's my friend next door, and I know that he has it. He might get a little upset because it's the middle of the night, but it's not a major breach of, of, of etiquette. So he, he takes the lesser of the two evils, and he goes next door. What is his impudence? His impudence is the fact that it's the middle of the night. But let me ask you this. What if he didn't ask for bread? What if he just said, okay, look, you know something, I, I don't want to disturb my friend next door. You know what he's going to do. You know what he did last time, so I'm not going to tell him about this. I'm just, just suffer through. Well, that's wrong. And in fact, it's presented to us almost as sinful. So therefore, hospitality is not served unless the man asks for the bread. Furthermore, hospitality is not served unless the man in bed with his children and the door locked gets up gladly and shares everything that he has. And that's the premise that Jesus says here in the last verse. I tell you, okay, that's authoritative speaking. Jesus as the incarnate son of God says, I've got something authoritatively to tell you. I tell you. Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend. Now, of course, that is where this becomes a parable and not doctrine. Okay, Because the one we're talking about is not a man sleeping with his kids, but the Lord God, who is a friend to all of his children and loves us entirely and is a good God. But nonetheless, if he doesn't get up because he's a friend, he will get up because of his shamelessness. Because it would be shameful if he didn't. Because it would be a major breach of honor and decency if he didn't do it. And so therefore, if the man doesn't get out and give the bread, hospitality is not served. So two things have to happen. Both of them necessary. The one man has to ask and the other man has to grant. And then hospitality is served. So let's talk, let's step out of it entirely. Okay. Because it's a parable. It's, it, it's meant to tell a simple story. It, it's, it's meant to portray a principle. And what's the principle? Jesus has just got through telling us, if you want to know how to pray, pray like this. 38 words with a heart language. Now, let's talk about the one you're actually praying to. And let me give you a real quick parable about that. Imagine that you had a request and you had a need and you had something. Now, I've already told you, pray for the glory of God. Pray to the intimate father who is a good father who loves you. Pray for the coming of the kingdom. Pray for his provision. Pray for forgiveness. Pray for all these things that bring glory to God. Okay, that bring to that are things that God just loves to answer. Now, what kind of God do you think you're praying to? Okay. Oh, right. So, so, so may, maybe you ask in the middle of the night. Maybe you ask under duress. Maybe you don't ask exactly right. But what you're doing is you're asking someone not like this man. That's an unbelievable thing. That would never happen. You are asking a God who can't wait to give you every good thing, who loves you. And if you ask him for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake. That's just around the corner. We're going to see that next week. And if you ask for an egg, he's not going to give you a scorpion. This is a God who loves you and wants to give you every good things. In fact, you want to know the way God actually works, folks? You don't even have to ask him. 
As soon as he hears the man knock at your door, he realizes that you're probably going to need some bread. So he's over knocking on your door too to give you the bread because he knows what you need before you ask him. You see, we're talking about God here. Now, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, uh, and, 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 and the, the object that we have before us is no longer hospitality. It's the kingdom of God and God's glory. God's glory is not going to be served if you don't ask him for the things that you need. You keep it to yourself and you say, I can do it myself or I don't want to bother him. That, that, that's, that's step number one. That's impudence number one. But impudence number two is something that cannot possibly happen. My dear friends, if you think in your wildest imagination that God is the kind of God who will maliciously withhold good things from you, would actually say to you, don't bother me. I'm busy. I've got a war over in the Middle East and I, and I have things that I'm doing. So, so come back tomorrow morning because my kids are in bed and my door is locked. Do you think you could say anything more ludicrous? If that's the way you think of God, you have an idolatrous, watered-down, blasphemous view of God. That's not the God of the Bible. Amen. The God of the Bible listens to every single word that His children say. And let me tell you this. Let me make sure I word this correctly. If God did not answer every request of his saints, it would be shameful. It would be shamelessness. God cannot be shameful. It would be small. It would be petty. It would be something that would, that, that would not be godlike in nature. Now, let me hasten to say before you sit there and say, wait a minute, come back, Pastor Kirby, you're talking word of faith here. You're talking about like the, the name and claim it, folks. No, I'm not. Because I want you to know that no and not yet are just as definitive answers as yes. And quite often those are the answers you get to your prayer. But if you think that when you pray and you say, oh, dear Lord, you know, I, 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 I need you to, to, um, uh, to fix this relationship or, or, or I need you to save my loved one and then the loved one dies or I, I need you to take this pain away and he doesn't take the pain away or I, I, I need you to preserve my job and, and, and you lose the job anyway or a million other things that we ask God, this parable is a very simple story to tell you and reassure you, remember who you're you're talking about. Don't humanize him. Don't change the word to make it look like it is your petitioning that is important here. It would be shameless if God didn't answer your prayers because God loves his saints and he hears every single word. Now he doesn't hear the words of the pagans. You can talk to him all day long. The only prayer of a pagan that God hears is the prayer for forgiveness and repentance and that Jesus would be accepted as Lord and Savior. But we're talking about sanctification here. We're talking about his saints and God hears and responds to every single one of those words. He's never too busy. He's never too tired. He's never in bed with his children. The door is never, ever bolted. He's listening to your prayers all the time. And so that's, that's the, 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 the real simple conclusion here. And, and, I, and once again, I, I just, I, I just think that if, if we start talking about persistence or boldness here, that we, we miss the whole story. You know, then it's, it's, it's a positive thing for me to keep on praying until God lets me have what I want. Well, I just want you to see one thing. I'm not going to get technical. I'm going to wrap this up now. 
But people want to make a parallel between this and the parable of the of the persistent widow later in Luke 18. And, and they say, well, this is a parallel to that. That widow, I mean, remember, there's a godless judge not listening to her. And she keeps asking. And finally, out of her persistence, he responds to her. Okay, this is totally different. And, and I just want you to consider the theology here. Okay, you go to the house. You say, would you please give me three pieces of bread? And God says, no. And you persist. And you keep bugging him until he reluctantly answers your prayer. What kind of God have you just made him? You just brought him down to your level. You just humanized him. That's not the exalted God of Scripture. You don't change his mind. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you pray, no matter how fervent you are, no matter how loudly you bang on the door, and this guy's not even banging on the door. You will never change his mind. Everything God does is according to his eternal decree, according to his plan. And the one thing that we know, if you understand the attributes of God, that he is perfect in his righteousness, in his love, in his compassion, in his mercy, in his justness, he is infinitely good. And no matter what he leads you through, no matter if he answers your prayer the way that you want him to answer it, no matter what happens, you can rest assured because the good God heard you and responded to your prayers. He responds in a way that is best for you. And sometimes it's best for you to be led through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes it's best for you to suffer. Sometimes it's best for you to be tested. And you can rest assured, that's the simple meaning of the parable, rest assured that the one who is you're praying to always hears you and always answers your prayer. Just not always yes. So what are we left to do? What's the, what's the story? What's the, the, the principle? What is Jesus teaching? If God is a good God and He's always going to do what is right, He's always going to get out of bed, He's always going to answer our prayers, just maybe not in the way that we want Him to, according to the same structure, what's He asking us to do? Trust Him. Trust Him. I know what I'm doing. I'm God. Don't bring Him down. Don't humanize Him. He knows what He's doing and you don't know what He's doing. And so therefore, trust is what He wants out of us. He wants us to ask, to continue to ask. Remember, it would not have been right if they didn't ask, but it would have been impossible for God not to answer once the question has been given. So I'll leave you with that. Simply trust Him to be good. Trust Him to be God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we see a simple parable and... and, and how differently that is often seen. It's, it's seen as us being told to be persistent and bold and bang your door down and then you'll finally answer us. No, I think that what Jesus is saying is you know what we need before we need it. You, you love us and completely hear our prayers and if we, we don't get what we ask for, when we ask for it, it's not a time for us to get despondent and to shake our fist at you and say you're not paying attention to us or not listening. It's to, that's the time for us to trust. Trust that you know what's best for us and trust that you are a good God and that all that you do for us is good. 
infinitely good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.